Greetings. My name is Jalandra A. Davis, otherwise known as Mommy Melusine. I am a writer, scholar, educator, dancer, mermaid enthusiast, and all around creative. Welcome to the Merwomanist Podcast, where we talk about Black mermaid lore, fantasy, spirituality, and aquatic culture. Dive in and enjoy. Hello, and welcome to the Merwomanist Podcast in our series on horror, which will span from the month of October into November. I am interviewing for this episode my good friend, Nicole D. Sconiers. Nicole D. Sconiers is the author of Escape from Beckyville, Tales of Race, Hair, and Rage, a speculative fiction short story collection that has been taught at colleges and universities around the country, including some of my classes, and I also wrote about this book in my dissertation. Her work has appeared in Nightmare Magazine, Light Speed Magazine, Speculative City, Nightlight, a horror fiction podcast, Podcastle, Lucky Jefferson, Spelman College's literary journal, Aunt Chloe, and other publications. Her short stories were published in the anthologies Black from the Future, a collection of Black speculative writing, December Tales, and Sycorax's Daughters, which is a great book. On my shelf right now, it was a Bram Stoker Award finalist. She wrote the psychological thriller A Mother's Intuition, which premiered at the 2023 American Black Film Festival and aired on TV One in July 2020. Her short story, A Bird Sings by the Etching Tree, appears in the New York Times bestseller Out There Screaming, an anthology of new Black horror, edited by Jordan Peele and John Joseph Adams and published by Random House. Welcome to the podcast, Nicole Scanier. Okay. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Merwomanist Podcast. I am here today with my friend, Nicole Sconiers. This is one of my favorite writers. Um, she is the independent writer, and we met some years ago um, around her first book. Well, her, yeah, your first collection, short mm -hmm. story collection, Escape from Beckyville, um, which I actually wrote about in my dissertation project. Um, and sort of its representation of Black women and horror. So I thought it would be so great to have you on for the horror month of the podcast to just talk about your journey and talk about Black horror, right? Um, so welcome and thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. It's always good to catch up with you. Thank you so much. I know it is, it is. I'm still waiting for you to get back to the West Coast. Very soon. <laughs> All right. So I wanted to start with thinking a little bit more broadly in terms of how would you define Black horror? Because I feel like we have horror that Black people create, but we also have like the representation of Black people in horror, which mm -hmm. isn't always coming from Black people themselves. And I think that like genre categories when it comes to Black work are often look a lot different in terms of what's mm -hmm. horror, what's science fiction, what's fantasy, what's, you know, religion, you know, so mm -hmm. I want to hear a little bit about what do you think about what Black horror is and what Black horror specifically does. And if you have any examples of maybe some classic texts of Black horror or of the genre. So Black horror is when people who society considers monstrous mm -hmm. get to define who the monsters are, right? Mm -hmm. It's like people of color, people who have been marginalized get to create art in their image. So Black Horror allows us to critique social justice issues like race, misogynoir, um, police brutality in a way that, as you said earlier, only we can speak to. But it's not it gives us the ability to play with genre as well. Like we can have fun with it. Like we can be Black final girls. We can be demon slayers and we can be demons in terms of. My introduction to Black Horror was Tanana Reeve Dews, My Soul to Keep. I read it about 15 years ago. It was the first time I had read about Black vampires, Black immortals. And it liberated me to say, oh, Black people can do this. You know, when you are so used to seeing white vampires, white immortals, you don't see yourself represented and you don't give yourself permission to write those type of stories, to tell those type of stories. So Tanana Reeve, who was my mentor in grad school and is also in this collection out there screaming, she has a story in there with me as well. Um, it was just great to see how she um, portrayed Blackness as something that's both terrifying, but liberating. And also, I just remembered like the first ghost story that I read was by Zora Neale Hurston. She wrote a short story, Spunk, and it's about a man, Spunk, <laughs> who kills his girlfriend's husband. 
and is haunted by this murdered man. And to me, even though it was told from, from the perspective of a male protagonist, it's really about how women are silenced because Joe's wife is, she doesn't really have any agency in the story. It's, it's like the battle between these two men. But I, but I realized like that was like my first introduction to like a black horror story, a black ghost story. Yeah, that is so fascinating. I haven't read that, but I have read some of, like I've read um, Tell My Horse, right? Where mm -hmm. Hurston is, is talking about Vodun and these African cosmologies and zombies, mm -hmm. right? Um, so yeah, I think that's really exciting. I, I will definitely check that out. And I think it speaks to something I'm finally seeing happening that I've been wanting to happen within those of us who work on and talk about Black speculative literature, like I feel like for so long, it's like Afrofuturism, Afrofuturism, like we've been talking about everything through the vein of Afrofuturism. And I'm excited to see us kind of identifying those genealogies of the specific kind of like subgenres within Afrofuturism, right? Like, because I feel like those kind of stories, those early stories, people will say, oh, these are Afrofuturist texts, which is fine. But it's also horror, <laughs> right? Exactly, right. Horror has its own generic convention. And I that kind of reminds me of, you know, like Edgar Allan Poe and what is it? The Beating Heart, right? Like mm -hmm. the Telltale Heart. The Telltale Heart. So this idea of like this haunting. And I just want to see Black horror in Black like fantasy and like our, our, the other kind of genres we're doing that are intersecting in a part of mm -hmm. Afrofuturism be theorized more in terms of the gen generic conventions of those genres, right? Mm -hmm. um, and to, to your point about Poe, I think when I first read Spunk like 30 years ago, I didn't read it initially as like a ghost story because it was no dark and stormy night. There were no haunted castles. You know, this is a small village in Eatonville, Florida of Black folks. You know, poor Black folks are gathered around talking about their own folklore stories. So it so I didn't read initially as horror, but but reading it years later, I'm like, oh, Sora was ahead of her time. You know, mm -hmm. she's talking about how we can be haunted, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think and yeah, also thinking about those generic conventions, also the way that we flip those conventions and the way we yes. work them and the way that we do different things with them, right? Mm -hmm. A sunny day on a suburban sidewalk, a horror setting for black folks. Right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Right, lock your doors. <laughs> right, like, oh, you know, woo, this is right, you know. So that that actually leads me into another, um, and that was actually planned to be later, but I'm going to jump into it now. I am mm -hmm. really interested in something that I call racial world building. At this point, I might change that term, but I'm really mm -hmm. interested in the ways that Black writers revise existing tropes, subgenres types of characters, mythological figures, generic conventions. Like I'm really interested in the way that Black writers revise those things from within mm -hmm. the realities of Black life, right? Mm -hmm. um, so what Tana do did with the Immortals in the African Blood Brothers series, mm -hmm. what you do with vampires, body mm -hmm. snacks, ghosts. So can you talk a little bit about some of that work, like some of the things you've done with taking these like horror conventions and sort of rewriting them from within Black life? Well, I write what's what I call working class Black girl horror. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I do, I do write about the realities that women of color, Black women face. So with Escape from Becky, in terms of racial world building, white women are the monster. <laughs> you know, and typically in horror, white women are the final girls, you know, they're like the plucky, like they they have agency that that black women don't often have. And so Beckyville came about because in my adult life, I've worked around white women. I've often been the only black person in my department at times. And just facing a lot of microaggressions, you know, with hair and you know, skin color. And that led me to start exploring the theme of what it means to be a monster, to be a villain, you know? And so 
that so how I flipped, I guess that trope was I'm going to make these white women demons, you know, hair vampires. Um, they they prey on black women's skin, like all these different ways that I felt that I had been oppressed. But but also I didn't want it to just be this collection of black women are oppressed. How can we be empowered in the face of all these microaggressions that we're dealing with? So there's like this um, solidarity that happens in that story because the black women have to like like oh they're they're mm-hmm. making our hair right and mm-hmm. it's personal terrain for us mm-hmm. you know you spend your whole life growing your hair out or whatever so you know they're reacting to these hair vampires and then they like form an uprising so yeah and also black hair is seen as powerful mm-hmm. you know a lot of times we are we are fetishized for our hair. You know, the very first time when I did the big chop, like years ago, I was at a cocktail party and this white woman just said, can I touch your hair? Like at the table, like, dude, like we're eating, like we have finger foods and you want to touch my hair, you know? So it, so yeah. Right. (laughs) But I let her do it, but I, but I don't know why I let her do it. And after I did that, I just felt like disempowered and how can I empower myself in the face of being objectified and I know women have struggles that we face black and white women and so we're always going to have these tenuous allyships because we are both fighting white supremacy you know and but but they benefit so it's like how do you have like a true sisterhood when you benefit and I don't and we're and sometimes you're not even fighting against it what what I'm fighting against so Beckyville was my way of tackling white supremacy from a black woman's standpoint and empowering myself. Yeah, no, definitely. I was just listening to, I'll put this in the show notes, but I was just watching this YouTube video um, and I'll have to find the creator and credit her, but it was about the story of Lake Lanier or Lanier. I'm not sure how to yes, say it. Lake Lanier, yes. You know that story? I just yes, found out about yes. this. I was going to mention that in Georgia, mm-hmm. a haunted lake. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's this black town that is basically underwater now. And all of the black people were burned out of, murdered out of, pushed out of, dislocated out of this town, this very prosperous black town. And then there was like a basically a dam, like a man-made lake just built over the town. So the houses, everything is still there. The graves from the cemetery, everything is still there. But um, when I was listening to this history of it, it was basically all of the justifications for Black people being pushed out of this town and all the killings that happened and the lynchings all started from alleged assaults against white women, from these white women claiming that, you know, they'd been attacked by Black men. In at least one of these cases, it was pretty much, you know, m- many people testified to the fact that one of those was a consensual relationship, right? But she got caught, so she had to lie about it. So, Echoes yeah. of Emmett Till. <laughs> you said what? Echoes of Emmett Till. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? And I was just like, wow, you know? So, yeah, you know, like, who's the monster, <laughs> right? Especially exactly. when you think of so much of horror, when you think about horror and gender, so much of horror revolves around the threat to the white female body. Like that's usually the imperiled figure of a lot of horror films, right? Something to think about. That's, yeah, that is interesting. I was doing research about Lake Lanier too and about displacement, right? Because how Black people were displaced from that town through eminent domain. I believe that's how they were able to take over their houses to build the lake. But also the history of the the lynching. And I actually, like you said, one of the relationships was consensual, but she had to lie about it. So let's back up um, to some things I wanted to ask you a little bit earlier, because I think it's such a fun story. I know this story, but I want the audience to hear it. How did your journey with horror writing begin? Oh, my gosh. Probably when I was eight, actually. (laughs) My mom would bring home Stephen King and Dean Koontz books and leave them on the coffee table. And I was an avid reader and I'd be drawn to the cover. And the first horror book that I picked up was Dean Koontz's Whispers. And I just identified with the darkness, like the darker side of human nature just fascinated me. And I remember, spoiler alert, you know, the white woman is the final girl. And I'm like, why did she get to live? You know, so horror, horror was something that I came to early you know, would go to the bookstore with my mom when I was younger and just every Saturday we'd get a book and I'd always get something horror, 
It was either Sweet Valley High or Horror. And so I always knew that I wanted to, I was drawn to dark tales and I wanted to tell these dark tales. And it wasn't until grad school when I was pursuing my MFA at Antioch um, University, Los Angeles, their program has an emphasis on social justice. And I thought this is a great way to marry my love of horror with calling out different social justice issues. That's how I started. (laughs) But from a very young age, I identified with the monster. I identified with just this feeling of terror and dread and the darker side of human nature. Can you tell us about the obituaries? <laughs> yes, you remember the obituaries. I think it's so, like my so mom. Funny. My mom had a handful with me. So yes, I wrote obituaries when I was eight or nine years old of my bullies. Whoever bullied me, they were going to get an obituary. Like Timmy got ran over by a school bus. You know, Susie, something terrible happened to her. My mom was like, where is this coming from? But those obituaries were really empowering because words allowed me to kill something that I didn't, that I felt powerless to stop in my real life. And what's funny is like years later, Stephen King wrote a, wrote a short story about a person who writes obituaries who kills people in real life. I'm like, what? I had that idea first when I was eight years old. <laughs> So yeah, so horror was a way for someone who felt powerless as a as a child to have a voice, even though it was a grotesque voice. <laughs> I mean, I always I did I was bullied a lot as a kid, mm-hmm. as a teen, <laughs> and um, I've talked about that on this bo- podcast. So I always identify with that origins. It's like a villain origin story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You know, I always identify with that story because I just found like, wow, that's incredibly cathartic, Mm -hmm. you know, and I do think that it's like people sometimes, you know, we have these debates in the black community about representation and good versus bad. And, And one of the things that I think about art is art is not only supposed to represent us how we want to be, Mm -hmm. it's a place to put our antisocial impulses and our violent impulses and you know it's a place to live out realities mm-hmm. that we might need to purge right <laughs> and absolutely I'm, or you know there is a pleasure in watching the kills in horror and that seems terrible but I think that you don't want to kill people in real life right so maybe <laughs> So work out your issues in a story. (laughs) Work out your issues in a story, right? Like work them out in a different way. Um, So you said something about, okay, Stephen King wrote this story. So speaking of She Did It First, Mm -hmm. I feel like we're in a, I don't know, a Black horror renaissance surge in terms of TV and film. Um, Mm -hmm. And we're seeing a lot of like what I call racialized horror, right? Mm -hmm. We're seeing the... um, Horror, the genre conventions of horror tied to Black life, realities, white supremacy, all of this. Like mm-hmm. I started watching, you know, the other Black girl, right? So yes. a lot of this. And um, it's like when we had our conversation with some of the independent writers, you know, independent Black science fiction writers we were talking to last year, mm-hmm. um, that I'm like, Nicole did this first. <laughs> but that like- yeah. This style of Black horror existed before we started seeing it on screen with like Jordan mm-hmm. Peele and some of these other big projects. So I just yes. want to hear your thoughts on that. Like, what do you think about some of the horror that we're seeing, particularly on screen? Because I think that's mm-hmm. what a lot of people are um, familiar with. Do you have mm-hmm. favorite projects or, you know, wh- like, what do you think? What are your thoughts about that? I love it. Like anytime, like I have my own Bechdel test. Like I just love seeing like black people on screen, like having agency and doing like these cool things. So I'm watching the Changeling, uh, Victor Lavelle's series. You watched it on Apple, Apple Plus. I just love multi-layered speculative stories that keep you guessing. And what else am I? I'm reading Slay, Stories of the Vampire. Noir. I'm I'm reading a lot of anthologies right now. A lot of Black women-centered anthologies. What else am I watching? I did watch the other Black girl, um, which which was really interesting. The the first couple of episodes, I was really like, is this horror? Is this what is this? You know, 
Um, what else am I watching? I watch a lot of indie horror on YouTube. Alter is a horror short uh, channel on YouTube. And I love seeing how independent directors with micro budgets can put together provocative works of art that Hollywood cannot even compete with. Like you had a $5,000 budget. Like how did you, like your production values were like next level. Like how did you do that? You know, and people get $20 million for a budget and can't even compete. So I love seeing what indie artists are doing with limited budgets, because that's something that I envision myself doing in the future, doing it, directing a short film, a, a short horror film. Yeah, no, I feel you on that. I just did an episode about um, like mermaid horror films, mm -hmm. you know, and a lot of them are, you know, like, like pretty low budget. And I mean, sometimes it does show, <laughs> but I do think that these smaller films and these smaller projects, there's just chances that they're willing to take or that they're able to take, mm -hmm. you know, it just seems like the more money, the less risks. Exactly. I do find that they are more willing to take risks. And also it can serve as a proof of concept. Like, hey, I did $5,000. Imagine what I could do with $5 million. But speaking of which, I did watch Tanana Redo the Lake. Oh, yes. Okay, okay. Yes. Um, no, I love the idea of the water being a place of healing, but also being a place of dread. Yes. Can we talk about that? Cause, cause I was that, that led me to research Lake Lanier and how it's just so haunting, but it's just, but, it, but the woman in the story came there as, as a site of healing and yes. actually something monstrous. She had that in her. She had that in her. Yes. We did not find that out until the teacher told her, Hey, but yeah. <laughs> She had that in her. Right. Yeah. I'm going to talk about that story in depth. But yeah, we could talk about it. We could talk about it. I'm going to try to talk about it without spoiling it. I don't know. It's hard with that. It story. is hard. It is hard. <laughs> um, but yeah, the water as like not only a site of healing, but as, as a site that brings out your truth, mm -hmm. whatever that truth is. Yeah. <laughs> like a dark mirror. Yeah. Yeah. It's a dark mirror. Right. So whatever's in you is what it will bring out. Also, that's so interesting that you that inspired. That's what inspired you to look at, into Lake Lanier. Yeah. yeah. So for for listeners, Tananarive Du has a short story in the collection Ghost Summer, which was adapted into a short film in a short film collection called Horror Noir, which is playing on Shutter, which is a channel on um. I think it's the Amazon channel, um, but it's about this lake and everyone is told don't swim in that lake, right? Like don't swim in that lake. And so this woman who's new to town, who has some stuff going on with her <laughs> that we yeah. won't say swims in the lake and the lake brings something out in her, mm -hmm. right? So, yeah. It, it is interesting how she flipped that trope because Initially, you look at the the woman who comes to the lake house as someone who you could identify with. She's right. gone through a breakup. You know, she's she's has this agency. She's independent. She's she's starting over. But then it becomes something more um, monstrous. Yes. Yeah. And it brings yeah. up that whole what you were talking about at the beginning about like, who is the monster? And I love seeing black people not to I don't think I'm spoiling, but I like seeing black people as villains. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think that shows that we have a range, like we can be demons and demon slayers. So, mm -hmm. Did you watch, did you watch Swarm? Did you get a chance? Yes. 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 Right. And so I'm like, yeah, you know, I think that for people who think about Black culture in terms of, this is why I think we got to get beyond representation, right? Mm -hmm. For people who think about Black culture in terms of representation, I think they didn't know what to make of that, right? Mm -hmm. so There's a lot of respectability politics. Yeah, the respectability like, politics, mm -hmm. like you can't recoup this within respectability politics. But um, I was just at a conference called Festival of Munsters. And one of the things that came up in our conversations is that equality would be being able to be the monster or the villain without mm -hmm. that being seen as representative of the larger group. Right. Black people get to do it all the time. They get to do it. They get to have fun. And she had fun being 
Can I say <laughs> a serial yes. killer? <laughs> yes, Norm. Y'all should have seen that by now. <laughs> yeah. She had fun being a serial killer. I'm like, oh, this is a dope idea. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, and I, it's, it's different dimensions and different layers of humanity and they mm -hmm. don't have to be positive. Right. So right. it's showing different layers of like desire and frailty and obsession and Black people have the capacity to occupy all of those emotions and spaces, mm -hmm. just like anybody else. Author C.Y. Marshall has a Lady Ice, a series called Lady Ice, and mm -hmm. it's about a Black woman serial killer. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought of that when you were talking about Swarm and the whole notion of Black women protagonists have to always represent. You know, we have to be the lawyers, the doctors. People are talking about. I don't want trauma porn. Well, you know, like let us have all these, we have a diversity of experiences. Let us have a diversity of representation. So that's a good segue to the next question, right? <laughs> so one of the things I've been thinking a lot about in my work um, is sort of responding to the discourse I feel like we have in popular culture around trauma, right? A lot mm -hmm. of people you know, who they don't want to see, you know, any more slavery movies. They don't want to see any more movie like representations of the Jim Crow past. They don't mm -hmm. want to see more representations of racialized violence. They want to center black joy. And it's like, I'm empathetic to that position. And there are some horror things that I've come out lately that have crossed the line to me, like not like broadly, but for me personally, where I feel like this is a little bit too traumatic for me to find pleasure, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. So I think that that line can vary for individual people. So it's not that I'm not empathetic to that position, but I feel like it doesn't make enough room for, you know, people to write and create things mm -hmm. for all kinds of different reasons, including catharsis, you know? <laughs> so as someone who I know works with the dark, works with the unsettling, what yes. are your thoughts about that? I think there's room for both. Um, I think that Black horror reflects the times. I mean, we're living in a time of great upheaval and mm -hmm. people want to call that out. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I understand the need to center joy because you're dealing with so much. It seems like we're living in a dystopia, right? That's why Black Mirror was on hiatus for a couple of seasons because Charlie Brooker said, we're already living in dystopia. Like why write about it? <laughs> Right. So I, I do love stories about Black joy. In fact, in um, Slay, there's a story by Dicey Grainer, Diary of a Mad Black Vampire. And I'm thinking that it's going to be, you know, kind of like gory and gruesome. And it was actually about a, a lonely Black woman vampire who longed for kinship and companionship. And she finds it in this Black woman. And they have these Thelma Louise adventures. And they go off to like do these fun things. I'm like, oh my God, that's so fun. You know, so I love seeing those stories too. And I think there's room for both. I think they there's room for joy. And I think there's room for us to call out the joy stealers. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and I, I feel the same way, you know, and I think we just, we, I've balanced, right? I think we need a diversity of things to choose. Mm -hmm. We need um, stories that end with some victory, you know, and we need unsettling stories. Like, mm -hmm. I just think we need a balance. And I do think there's something in mainstream popular culture where, okay, we know this sales, you know, mm -hmm. we know that the more typical sort of historical film we know. So they like that gets latched latched onto, right? So mm -hmm. I think it's kind of interesting that Octavia Butler's Kindred made it to screen mm -hmm. many other of her books, right? So yes. I do think that there is something to our larger environment in terms of the appetite and desire for black pain. But I don't think that we should let that limit the way we interpret the work of Black creatives who mm -hmm. are writing lots of different things for lots of different reasons or are interested in different things. And I also think in terms of what's going on with the government, well, with with <laughs> with Republicans, right? Whitewashing right. history. Like yeah. we need to hear these, we need this history, right? We need to combat the narrative that slavery was a good thing. <laughs> You know, right. it's like, no, it was horrible. Like we need to keep talking about it and, and find inventive, creative ways 
to talk about slavery. Yeah, that's actually one of, I think that's one of the things I'm coming to. Um, even though this isn't as part of my work right now, but I have always sort of been interested in speculative texts of what I call the racial past. So slavery, mm-hmm. general, or even like contemporary like violence. I'm interested in the way that Black speculative writers mm-hmm. take up these topics and, and kind of work within them, right? Um, and maybe that's the prior, maybe that is a primary way we can engage with the past because you get to have a taste of like, magic or escapism at the same mm-hmm. time that you're talking about like these real histories mm-hmm. like uh justina ireland's dread nation so it's like a black girl zombie novel set in antebellum times where like, black women are the heroines are like the saviors <laughs> exactly right um i think that's a good segue to talking about um one of your recent stories how to become an mm-hmm. ancestor i think it's a really interesting twist on a ghost story and is speaking very specifically to, you know, the uprisings and police brutality. Um, so I just wanted to hear you talk about that story a little bit, maybe even mm-hmm. if you want to read a little bit from it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's up to you. <laughs> I think I can start with reading a little bit from How to Become an Ancestor and then I'll talk. Does that work? Yes, that works. Okay. How to Become an Ancestor. First, die. The girl had fulfilled that initial requirement, though not willingly. And yet she found herself on the side of a block of row houses surrounded by five or six faces, both familiar and unfamiliar. The kingdom of the slain. The girl had achieved a royalty she never aspired to in life. And it was boring. Boring to preside over a North Philadelphia courtyard where sweaty boys played video games and girls whispered on nearby benches, twirling their braids with indifference. Boring to feel the very wall where she was stained in remembrance vibrate with hip hop from a passing car, knowing she could no longer dance or lip sync to the lyrics. She remembered when she was the one riding in a passing car at a party with her girls, holding up the wall and the bass from a trap song made her chest throb so hard. She had to press her hands to her bosom, fearful her heart would explode. But one day it did explode and her hands were helpless to stop the rupture. Second, die violently. Bloodshed is not always a prerequisite for ascension. Beating, stomping and choking will suffice. Bruising is how the ancestors recognize each other and how we recognize them, the ones who have gone before and the ones who are to come. So that story, How to Become an Ancestor, was inspired by the death of Breonna Taylor. That's the first ghost story that I've written. Like I typically, like I said, I do my working girl, black girl horror. So that was the first ghost story that I wrote. And I did want to explore how that story came about was when Breonna Taylor was murdered. Someone on someone tweeted, she's gone to join the ancestors. And I was like, but she didn't ask to join the ancestors, you know? And I know that's what we tell ourselves to comfort ourselves when something violent and tragic happens to, to us. And I wanted to explore the life of a girl who did not choose to become an ancestor and why she had ascended. Yeah, I think that's really... Um powerful because, you know, when people's lives are lost to these kind of conditions, you know, we make symbols of them and we Mm -hmm. immortalize them in these particular Mm -hmm. ways. So I just thought that was really fascinating. And I feel like I haven't seen that before, like the ghosts sort of being captured within the mural Mm -hmm. and having a bit of like refusal being captured. (laughs) Exactly. Of becoming. She had a life. (laughs) she had a life and like you said a lot of times these murals are created and then people forget Mm -hmm. you know and she had a life and she was young and her life was snatched from her violently and she like you said she did rebel against being immortalized with Mm -hmm. other slain Biggie and Tupac you know other slain people (laughs) she's like I don't even get my tribe I don't even get to choose my tribe (laughs) there's this um I don't know if you've ever seen like these t-shirt um, these like t-shirt shops in the mall where mm-hmm. basically they will um, this is something I've seen a few times where they have images of like 
dead celebrities. Yes. Put on the t-shirt together, right? Yeah, with like Malcolm X, Harriet Tubman. Yeah, on the t-shirt and Tupac, and they're like kicking it on the shirt or like, um, you know, I'm in LA, so Nipsey and Kobe. Yes, yes. But sometimes they'll throw a woman in there. They'll do like Marilyn Monroe with with Tupac. Like, <laughs> I have never seen that. <laughs> Thank you. That one up. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I, it is. It is so, sort of like a. I don't know. It's it's a weird to see them together when in life would they have ever you know like subscribed to each other's values. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's just a weird. And I'm like, I'm, I'm not criticizing it. I just think it's there's a culture around death for Black people, that it's an idiosyncratic culture that we have around death because we experience so much of it. It's a coping mechanism. Yeah. And um, on my, one of my recent episodes, I did a, ref- I did a grief series um, mm. next month or the month before last. It kind of bled into two months, but I did a grief series. And in my reflection episode, I was talking about ancestral veneration and how the way that I learned ancestral veneration when I was studying like in West Africa, was that you actually, at least in the Akan tradition, I was taught that you had to go through certain stages of life to actually become an ancestor. Like you actually mm-hmm. have through the state of being an elder before you became an ancestor. And I was just thinking about that with thinking about the conditions of Black life and how many of us don't get there. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, the structures and conditions of Black life don't allow people to pass through that stage before they start being called upon as ancestors. Right. And, you know, there's just a something interesting happening there with like African spirituality, you know, um, that I think that that story is like speaking to, you know. Thank you. <laughs> um, I think that's a good segue to you wrote another piece of your writing I want to talk about before we get out of here is you wrote an essay. I don't have the name of the essay, but you wrote an essay about the relationship between your faith and being a whore writer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I grew up black church, right? I grew up in the in in you know going to a black church, but also in my family, us having this different kind of relationship to the spiritual. Like my mom has dreams that come true, you know, like we believe in spirits, right? But then being told at church that that is like a phantom that's Mm -hmm. trying to tempt you and you can't believe it. But knowing that we, you know, it was just like this, you know, just this conflict, right? Like that we just had to like learn to live with, right? So I just wanted you to talk a little bit about what led you to write that and Mm -hmm. some of your experience in terms of that. Mm -hmm. So Saints and and Shapes Shifters is an essay that I wrote. um, So I belong to two groups. One is a Black women's prayer group and the other is a Black women's horror group. And it's just interesting how, you know, we have this, we come in our bonnets and and we share a lot of the same interests, but never the twain shall meet, right? <laughs> because like, as I say in the essay, one is casting out the darkness and the other is embracing it. And I wanted to explore that duality, being a Black woman who writes horror, who is a Christian. Now, I don't feel, I never felt that I had to necessarily explore Christian themes in my writing. Um, But I did feel that, I don't know, people, I didn't feel that I could be free with my friends who are Christians to tell them, oh, I write hard. Because I did tell one friend that, and she just kind of looked at me like, oh, (laughs) like maybe is this something that we should be casting out? (laughs) You know, but I, I always felt that my faith empowers me to write because Christianity is built on uplifting the the or uplifting, you know, the uplifting people in society who are marginalized. And that's what I think that I do in my writing. So I think that I'm adhering to my faith. I'm expressing my faith when I call out injustice in my writing. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I haven't talked about it as much as I plan to on a podcast, but you know, as a critical ethnic studies scholar, I I talk about Christianity a lot in terms of mm-hmm. its role in empire and its mm-hmm. yes, yes and patriarchy but like there's also a way in which it can be and black people know this right mm-hmm. that the way in which 
if you're actually going to the text and going to the stories, you can see the liberation, right? And you can Absolutely. focus on the liberating aspects, right? Mm-hmm. And especially it's the African religion, I mean. <laughs> right. And and I do call that out, which you mentioned earlier about patriarchy and how a lot of believers tend to oppress, you know, the LGBTQIA community, the unhoused, you know, different communities that they don't agree with or it's not in the Bible. You know, I'm, I'm constantly butting heads with people because I'm like, where's the love in that? Yeah. And I think that my work is about love. Ultimately, it's about love of my people. It's about love of Black womanhood. And I try. There's a a scripture, Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. And so that's what I always do. Whenever I sit down to write, I try to write the best damn story I can do. And I feel like God is like, yeah, you got to (laughs) go. So yeah, so I... So there was some tension there, you know, between my faith and and also critiquing church folk and realizing that it is a patriarchal religion, but trying to find the liberatory aspects of my faith and hopefully express that through my writing. Yeah, no, for real. And that's that's beautiful. And I think a lot of horror writers do incorporate Christian themes. If I think about my soul to deep, um, Mm -hmm. my what is it? My soul to keep. <laughs> I'm like, that was yes. wrong. That whole series is very, yes. like, there's a lot of very Christian mm-hmm. in there, but it's not uh, dogmatic. Exactly. There are some deep questions around eternity and the afterlife and mm-hmm. grace. Grace, resurrection. <laughs> okay. Yeah, there are um, ways to, to have redemptive themes without being dogmatic, yes, without beating people over the head. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like without being moralistic or being moralistic mm-hmm. way, right? So I feel like a lot of people, their their Christian moralism is very narrow. Like it's very limited to like sexuality or whatever, but yes. thinking about love, like love, liberation, right? Yes. Like expanding our concept of what it means to be moral. Yes. Right? Okay. I feel like we've done a lot. We have. <laughs> yeah. I know that you also write screenplays. Do you want to talk about yes. that? Because I know that's really how you started. And then you moved into yeah. fit. Yeah. I actually moved to California from the East Coast, from Pennsylvania, caught a Greyhound bus in my late 20s because screenwriting was my goal. I'm going to become a screenwriter. And that did not materialize for many, many years. But I, I didn't have a clue how to write screenplays at the time when I came to California, but I just knew I had these stories and I wanted to see them on the big screen. I wanted to see them on the little screen. I just wanted to see my stories, right? So I took screenwriting courses. I read as many scripts as I could. I tried to find a screenwriting community in LA when I did eventually move to LA. I joined the Organization of Black Screenwriters just doing whatever I could to get my work out there. And actually the first script that I wrote, Bless the Mic, was optioned several times, but as often happens with indie product projects, the money didn't come through. So my journey <laughs> took me back to Pennsylvania, you know, through family issues. I, I came back to Pennsylvania and thought, okay, well, I'm done being a screenwriter. What else can I do? Thinking that writing was like done. And a friend who is also a client, who is a producer on um, A Mother's Intuition, which was the film that I wrote, she had connections at TV One and they read the script and they loved it and were like, this is what we want. You know, this is like one of the best scripts that we've read. But because it had a lot of hard elements at first, I had to scale them back because they, it wasn't, they didn't think that it would resonate with their audience. So all that to say, A Mother's Intuition, a film that I co-wrote, aired this past July on TV One and also screened at the American Black Film Festival in June. So that was exciting. And now I'm working on, I I wrote a sci-fi film about trauma, sexual trauma, that I am taking out, getting out there. Oh, that's so exciting. I have to check that out. A Mother's Intuition. Okay. Yes. So you had to kind of scale back the horror elements where you did you mm-hmm. manage anything in there? I think I did. I think as much as possible without changing the meaning of the script. But I, but now I but now I realize the struggle that writers go through when you have one vision of your story and you see it presented a different way. Now, I was happy with the final vision, but I 
again, we were talking about budgets, you know, had I had like a 20 million budget, $20 million budget, I would have had like a ton of special effects. Like I would have really explored the horror elements as, as best as I could. Yeah. Yeah. And I also wonder if, you know, do you feel at all since you've gotten back into, you know, writing films mm-hmm. that the landscape for black horror and kind of more speculative representations of blackness mm-hmm. like, feel like there's a difference, like if it's changed at all over the last several years? People definitely want black horror as we've seen. What I'm noticing, though, is they'll have like a black woman protagonist and a white male, male. protagonist, like Barbarians, um, the vampire movie. It, it escapes me now. But I, I do know that Hollywood seems really receptive to black horror or stories with black heroines, mm-hmm. particularly like the other black girl. Yes. I'm more really speculative. <laughs> yeah, I am seeing a lot of black heroines. I mean, that's often, good, right? <laughs> it's good. Often in a white world. Well, yeah, that is true. <laughs> Reflecting the real world. Yes. True, true, true. Yeah, it's. You know, I mean, I think that's the thing with Hollywood. It seems like once something kind of works, they kind of. They want more of it. Mm-hmm. Like with Barbarians, like who thought that was like a sleeper hit, mm-hmm. you know? And when that movie was, it became a hit, people wanted more like Barbarians, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So I think sometimes, you know, just continuing the innovation, like I mm-hmm. know the innovation is there in the Black written work. Mm-hmm. But just being able to just keep seeing the innovation, I think sometimes in Hollywood, it's like hard. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Some studios like A24, I mm, think they yes. try to take risks, mm-hmm. you know, in their storytelling. They try to tell provocative stories and they try to have a diverse, you know, cast. Talk to me was what talk to me. I didn't see it, but it but it's a horror story about a black woman. And of course, she's in a white world. <laughs> So we'll have to check that out and come back and talk about that. <laughs> you were the person who told me about Nanny. So maybe yes. we'll talk about that real quick before we mm-hmm. go. Um, mm-hmm. I have a full episode on it. Mikiyatu Jusu. There's a Mami Wata in the film, which is why you told me about it. Mm-hmm. Um, something that I, so recently I did a kind of a mermaid horror wrap up where I went and looked at Nanny again. And I looked at the reviews and the audience review bombed it. Like, really? Yeah, at least on, I don't remember what site I was looking at. Um, if it's IMDb, they do that a lot for Black films. Black for Black films. films. That's yeah. the feeling that I got, right? Is that it was- They, they feel they're too woke. Too woke. And a lot of people were saying, this isn't horror, right? Yeah. So I do feel like there's something with a lot of Black films in terms of the way we play with genre and push at genre. Um, some people are just racist, but I also think there's something about like- the way Black people push a genre that's not legible. Well, I'm glad Black people, particularly in this situation, Black women get to take risks in telling a horror story that people, like they get to redefine horror. Black woman, an immigrant woman who was a nanny to these rich white people, just that log line is horror to some people. You know, you can imagine, you know, she here she is taking care of this rich white woman's child and her child is in danger, you know, and she's having to send money back home to her child. And so that's one person's experience. And that's hard to to certain segments of society. So I love the fact that she gets to redefine like what it means to be, as we said, who's the monster here? Right. Because. And I mean, I hope this is not a spoiler, like the the spirits that she's having these confrontations with throughout the film. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's scary because coming in contact with the other world, it's scary. Yes. And spirits are complicated, right? But they're not the monsters. <laughs> exactly. And it's up to interpretation and it can be read on multiple layers. And I think a lot of people are just, give me the gore, give me the, the blood up front, you know? And they don't want to think about the deeper meaning, you know, Mm -hmm. behind the story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, there's just so much that we're bringing to it, Mm -hmm. you know? I I am hoping that people will start to engage with horror in in not just a surface way, you Mm -hmm. know, like with with Nanny, with 
with the other black girl with the changeling that they that they'll see like the deeper meaning behind it like how else can this be read like what is it saying about society what is it saying about how we treat each other Mm -hmm. yes right and what is it saying that your white voice is not being centered (laughs) does that mean that you cannot enjoy this story because you feel like it's too woke or that you know the the white people are the bad guy the villain yeah yeah I think that's a lot of it. (laughs) You know, we're getting to Occupy the Center. And I'm like, if I could grow up on Stephen King and Dean Koontz, Mm -hmm. and these were the horror things that I was reading and watching, and Mm -hmm. I was able to enjoy, why can't y'all look at Black women's stories and do the same thing? Exactly. Exactly. And speaking of Stephen King, I I went back to reread Night Shift, his collection. I think his first collection of short stories. And it was a lot of working class stories. It was about people hating their job at the mill mm-hmm. and having, you know, bad marriages and also having to contend with this supernatural force that's trying to kill them, you know? And I think that that factors into how I write. Like I, I want to, I want to examine the lives of black women who don't feel seen, you know, who feel marginalized in some way who maybe are insecure or hate their jobs and have to contend with the supernatural thing that's trying to kill them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. At the same time. And it's like, usually I feel like in a really great story, there's like a connection there. Yes. You know, like there's a connection between, I don't want to call it the real world, but like there's a connection between those social, political labor, like those issues Mm -hmm. and the supernatural issue, right? Absolutely. Okay. Is there any last thing? That's all my questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> is there any last thing you'd like to leave us with? One last thing I'd like to leave your listeners with, your viewers with is Black stories matter. Black women matter. Black voices matter. So go out and so support a Black writer, a Black filmmaker, and let them know like their work is important. Like we have this voice, let's use it. Let's get our stories out into the world. Absolutely. absolutely. There are no insignificant stories. Absolutely. There's no insignificant stories. There's no insignificant people. Exactly. Well, thank you so much. Um, I hope I didn't talk too much, but it was just so No, I I enjoy, I'm I'm grateful for the conversation. Like you make me think. (laughs) Sometimes I feel like I'm I'm on autopilot and like, okay, I got to show up now. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm really excited um, that we were able to have this conversation and, you know, just keep doing you. Like, I'm just so excited for what else you come out with. Thank you. I appreciate it. You have just listened to the Merwomanist podcast with Mommy Melisine. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, I would love five stars, and subscribe for future episodes. You can follow me on Instagram at mommy, that's M-A-M-I underscore Melisine, or at Merwomanist podcast on LinkedIn at Jalandra Davis, or my website, jalandradavis.com. Wishing you love and laughter and hoping to see you swim this way again.